Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. All right, church, we have to first agree on some ground rules this morning. How many of you would agree? We're going to be honest today. That was not very affirming. I'm just going to tell you. So let me ask this. How many of you, being honest, how many of you put your Christmas decorations up in October? Few people. How many of you put them up in November? Okay. How many of you are those people? And you might raise your hand again. How many of those people say you put them up after Thanksgiving? Any of those folks? Okay. A lot of those people that do it the way God intended. Okay. Got it. Uh, how many of you are like, nope, nope, it's not officially Christmas till December, and you put them up then? A few of those folks? Okay, so here's the deal. No matter when you did it, whether you're one of those people that put it up before Halloween, <laughs> psychos, uh, <laughs> or you put it up in December, no matter what, by December 3rd, can we all agree Christmas season has officially started? Yes, that is exciting. Real quick, show of hands, how many of you, be honest, already have your shopping done how many of you hate the people that already have their shopping done <laughs> not trying to start a fight I'm just saying this was a shocking answer in the first service how many of you have ever regifted a Christmas gift Wow that is still so surprised I did not how many of you during the holidays you were reminded that your family would make a great reality show How many of you are really excited about a Christmas gift that you're giving somebody this year? Okay, we got some of that already. Christmas, we know, is about gifts, and we're going to focus on some of those gifts and gifts that we have been given by our Lord and Savior. Um, we're going to look at this gift-giving season through a particular text. It's a famous prophecy. It is not, however, particularly a Christmas prophecy, although it is going to prophesy Christmas. Um, we usually just kind of say it as if this is what happened, the, what was said the night that Jesus was born, but that's not the reality of this. Let me give you some background to the text. If you've got your Bible, by the way, you can turn to Isaiah 7, and then we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9. But it is uh, about 730 B.C., and there is a king that is reigning over the Israelite people. His name is King Ahaz. And Ahaz is not a particularly good dude. Matter of fact, he's a pretty bad dude. Um, and what's happening to him at the time is the Assyrian army, if you were here during the Jonah series, we talked about how evil the Assyrians are. Those people are at the doorstep of Jerusalem, and Ahaz, the king, is worried they're about to invade and kill all of his people. And so he's trying to figure out, how do I defend He's trying to figure out, how am I going to, like, do I need to get, uh, like, like make a, uh, an alignment with somebody else out there so that we can ha have a, a person that's, you know, another country that comes in and kind of partners with us and take these guys on? What are we going to do? And in that moment, God sends Isaiah to speak to King Ahaz. And he says, hey, man, chill. God is going to come through. Trust him. As a matter of fact, he's going to send you a sign. And this is what he says. He says in chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, a virgin will conceive and have a son. They will name him Emmanuel. And Ahaz says, no, thank you. Do not send me a sign. I don't want a sign. Because if God gives me a sign, I'm going to feel obligated to do what God wants. And I want to do what I want to do in this situation. And Isaiah says... Uh, tough. I mean, it's my translation, but that's essentially what happens. 
And he expounds on this and tries to help him understand this in chapter 9, verse 2. And this is our text that I want us to look at today. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And he's about to walk him through these people, his people, the Israelite people, and they've walked through a lot of darkness over a lot of years. And he's going to remind him that time and time again, God came through. And so here's what he's going to say, starting in verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you, and they rejoiced at harvest time. He's reminding them. He's come through. You've had harvest. He's enlarged the nation. Uh, he says, and they rejoiced when they're dividing the spoils. Dividing the spoils was something that happened when you, uh, when you overcame an oppressor or an army. You divided up the things that you got from that nation. In verse 4, it says that you have shattered the oppressive yoke. He's reminding them they've been in slavery, and God has come through and freed them from that slavery. And the rod on their shoulders... And the staff of the oppressor, they've been oppressed, and God has brought them out. Just as you did in the day of Midian, if you know your Old Testament kind of Bible history, he's referring to a guy named Gideon. And Gideon, uh, God leads and guides him to do a miraculous defeat of the Midianite army. And he's reminding him over and over again of these moments. He even says in verse 5, For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's reminding them of victory after victory. What would happen at the end of a war after a campaign of battle where these guys would be out there sweating and bleeding and dirt and mud. There's no showers out there in this time. And so they would come home and these garments would be horrible. But a sign of victory and a sign that the war was over was they would take these garments off and they would throw them in a pile and they would burn them up. And it meant... It's done, and we won. And he's reminding him of all this, and then he's going to go back in, in verse 6 and remind him of the sign, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal or Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, if you're Ahaz, or let me ask you this, most of us, when we hear this, hey, there is a child that is coming. We typically would always identify that child as? This is the Sunday school softball question, guys. Come on. That child that is coming for them is? Jesus. But Jesus doesn't come for 700 more years. So I want you to imagine Ahaz. I've got an enemy at my doorstep. I've got a life falling apart around me. I feel overwhelmed today. The hope that my redemption is coming in 700 years isn't real helpful. He's like, well, what about today? And maybe that's how you approach things. Maybe that's what you walk into. Maybe for a lot of people at this time of year, even Bible, Christianity, and especially Christmas, they go, Christmas is cute. We get it. We come to church. We light the little candle. We sing certain songs. We understand that. And I like this version. You know, you get the Ricky Bobby moment. I like sweet little six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus and his golden diapers in the manger. It's cute. But I don't have any clue what it does for me. I don't have a job. My marriage is collapsing. I got an addiction I can't get free from. My financial life is utterly devastated. I've got chronic pain that I cannot overcome. So thanks that the little baby Jesus was in a manger and, and you come to church and you hear that one day he's going to return and you go, that sounds great too, but what am I going to do today? And this is essentially the thought that Ahaz would have had. Now, in order to answer this question, I need to teach you a little bit about biblical prophecy. 
See, often in biblical prophecy, there was a temporary fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. In other words, there was a way that God fulfilled the prophecy in their day, a temporary one. It'd be kind of like this. Um, yeah, anybody love watching movie trailers? Okay, I don't anymore because they show you all the good parts of the movie. <laughs> but when I was a kid growing up, I know, I mean, like some of y'all are looking up here and you're like, what is he, 29, 30 years old? Um, <laughs> But I was a kid, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and, and like with the height of great movies. And so my favorite trailer of all time, and if you know it, you know it, all it showed in the trailer was a glass of water sitting on the dashboard of a car, and you heard a thud and ripples of water, and that movie was? And that was this temporary moment that you went, Ooh, I don't know what's coming but it's going to be awesome. That was the temporary, and then later the movie came out and we got the fulfillment. This is the way that often biblical prophecy works. There's a temporary fulfillment in their day, but it points to an ultimate fulfillment. So in their day, what's going to happen is Ahaz doesn't realize that God is already moving. Ahaz has a son. His name is Hezekiah. Now, I don't want to get too deep into biblical history, but just to give you this, Ahaz, bad, not godly. Hezekiah, his son, becomes a great godly king who brings the people back to the Lord. God is already moving in their day. So there's some important things that we have to understand about how this is set up because there's this anticipation that Hezekiah is born and things go better and they go, this is good, but it's still pointing to an ultimate fulfillment in the birth of which is going to come later. So let's do a little bit of kind of digging into this because I want to make sure that we don't miss something. We need to understand what God is doing when he is doing this kind of a prophecy. Like what does a future Messiah do for us today? There's a lot of people that come to church and they come to church and they go, I want to get saved. And you go, why do you want to get saved? I want to get saved so that later when I die, I get to go to heaven and not hell. And you go, well, that is, that's fantastic. But they don't really see what does this mean in my life right now. And yet God has something he wants to do in your life right now not just in your life when you're gone. And so here's the thing that I want us to understand about prophecy, what God is going to do in this. Number one, what God is doing in this prophecy is God wants to deal with the problem at its root. See, deeper than the armies, deeper than the health issues, deeper, deeper than your relational conflicts or economic needs, the root that he is going to deal with is the separation that we experience from God, and that separation is a very real thing in our life called sin. And if God took away every single one of our problems without fixing the separation from God, we would simply create new problems and still be doomed. And so God doesn't want to just fix the temporary issue. He wants to dig to the root. How many of you guys know Lord of the Rings? Tolkien, that guy. He has this quote. I love it. You'll see it on the screen. It says, evil is a shapeshifter. It's like a shadow, and after you defeat it, it takes another shape and grows again. Like, it's this thing that we have to understand that we often look at things and we go, they're evil and we're missing something. For example, how many of you have one of these? You don't have to hold it up, I'm just asking. We tend to look at it, and in today's world, we have so many messengers like, your technology is evil. It solves a lot of problems. Now, if you're lost somewhere, you have a voice on there, and a little map, and you have a little dot with an arrow that's you, and it tells you where to go. It says, turn left, turn left. Get in the right three lanes. 
Get a, and it tells you exactly where to go. This solved the problem. You're like, what problem is it solving? Back in the day, you think, we think it's dangerous now to glance over at the map on that little thing, but some of you old suckers used to open up an atlas while driving down the road. That was dangerous. You're trying to read a reference guide while driving down the road. It's bad. So it solved some problems. Like, we're more secure than we used to be. If somebody does something fraudulent on your bank account, your phone alerts you, you can shut that bad boy down. If somebody is at your door and they pass by your ring doorbell, their face will appear on there and you're like, ah, get away! <laughs> we're more secure, but we're also more exposed. Cyber attacks, identity theft didn't exist before we started doing this stuff. And so we're more secure, but somehow more exposed. And then you look at social media. I can tell you, the people that created social media, there's a great Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, where a lot of these people say, man, we honestly thought this would help bring the world together. We honestly thought this would help build community. We never anticipated the dark side of what was going to happen from social media. We thought we'd be more connected, we became more isolated. We thought we'd be more relational, found out that we actually created problems that people are dealing with in therapy that we never anticipated happening. Which means this, just a thought. Maybe the problem isn't the phone. Maybe the problem isn't social media. Maybe the problem is the root of darkness that is inside of us. God offers Ahaz a Messiah that is going to kill the root and transform hearts. See, we often stop short of what God wants to do. When you're struggling physically, we want physical healing. God wants to deliver us from the curse that caused it. We want injustice to be dealt with, and we want broken relationships to be mended. God wants to deliver us from the sin and the selfishness that caused them. We want conflicts to come to an end. God wants to send a Messiah that delivers us from the hatred that drove us into the conflict to begin with. He wants to kill the root, because that root is threatening your eternity. And when your eternity is settled, when he kills the root, it doesn't just make you better later, it actually transforms your life today. And the world now around us is impacted by the goodness of God. So he kills the root. The second thing that's important when you look at this is that God deals with the problem by giving us himself. We're going to be looking at four names. Let me just ask a quick question. Is anybody in here that's expecting... Like, don't reveal it for the first time if that's you. But, um, but if you, anybody in here expecting, we had like three or four in the first service. Okay, nobody in here. Let me tell you something. When you're expecting a child, there is a problem that you're going to face that nobody tells you about. Naming the child. There are rules that you need to know. If your spouse ever dated somebody with that name, <laughs> off the table. If anybody in your family that you care about ever had beef with somebody that had that name, off the table. Then you got to worry about what the name means. Some people are like, that's beautiful. But you got to look at what it means, and you got to look at what it means in different languages and different origins. For example, if you're not careful, you might name your child Kennedy, which is a beautiful name. We had a lot of Kennedys in the first service. But in some languages, it means misshapen head. <laughs> Julia, literally in several different translations, means boy who needs to shave. <laughs> We're going to officially change Zach's name to Julia after this service. <laughs> it's going to be great. If you've got a child named Olivia, Olivia in some languages means elf army, <laughs> which is kind of legit. I'm just going to say. 
And then you've got to worry about the combo. What's the first name, last name going to sound like together? And are they going to accidentally send a message? For example, and if you know, you know, okay? Like if you know this movie, but Julia Gulia is not a good thing to put together. But what about this? These are real names from people. Some of y'all are going to get there fast. Some of y'all are going to take a minute. Some of y'all on the way home, you're going to go, oh, that was hilarious, because you're going to get it just then. But the Mann family named their daughter Anita. You were about four seconds behind everybody else. So I just want you to know that. The Price family named their daughter Lois. This one takes a little mental work. Stay with me. The Back family named their daughter Helen. There you go. Some of y'all just got it. Okay. What we see in this passage of Scripture is God's going to give us four relational names. And they're certainly going to have an impact in eternity, but they're really meant to be names that impact us today. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And our goal for the next week, this has all been, just some of you guys are freaked out, but this is all just the intro to the series, is that for the next four weeks we're going to talk about those four names and what they mean. So let's today start with Wonderful Counselor. In the Hebrew, just like in English, there's two words. The first one is Pele. It means beyond understanding. It literally doesn't mean wonderful. It means too wonderful for words, which means that Isaiah is saying there's a counselor is coming, there's a Messiah that's coming, but that Messiah is too wonderful for words, beyond description. And then there's Yaetz, which means counselor, but it means something different than what we think of when we think of counselor. It means counsel, advice, consult, guide, but it means it from a position of authority. In other words, this is not just you reaching out to your friend at night and go, give me your two cents on this. This is not even you going to an earthly counselor and then leaving and going, well, I'll decide whether or not I'm going to apply any of this. This is you submitting to the authority of God and say, whatever the wonderful counselor, whatever this counselor that is beyond description, that is too wonderful for words, whatever he says to do, I will do. That's wonderful counselor that we look at the worst problems in our life and we trust that he knows the right way out. The book of Hebrews is going to explain why Jesus can be this for us. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way that we are and yet is without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Anybody, just out of curiosity, anybody grateful that we get to approach the throne? That's amazing to me. Approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Which means he's not just king, he's a king who understands what we go through. Anybody right here in, in December, or let me ask this, any time in your life have you ever been broke? Can I just tell you something? Jesus knows what poverty feels like. Did you know that? Like the feeling of your poverty, that was placed on him also. There's a couple of important factors that show us how poor Mary and Joseph were. Number one, they give birth in a barn. Joseph goes to his hometown. Relatives, hotels, nothing, couldn't get anything. Now, it was very packed, all that stuff, but let me tell you something. There's a lot of other places they probably would have chosen. And if they had resources, they probably could have got in them. But they didn't have any. 
I guarantee you this was not a choice they wanted to make because no woman that has ever given birth has ever, like Arden Claire just gave birth not long ago. JD, did she look at you and go, babe, I got a great idea. Can we find a place that's cold and has a lot of animals and poop around? Because that'd be awesome. She did not, okay. Any other ladies wanted a lot of poop around when you, okay, I don't think so. I don't even need to poll the audience. Nobody picked that. But here's another reason that we know is because when they go and they, they commit Jesus to the Lord, when they dedicate him in the temple, the requirement of the law is to bring a lamb. But they don't bring a lamb, they bring a pigeon. And there's a provision in Jewish law that is exclusively for the poorest of the poor. That if they cannot afford a lamb, they can bring a pigeon. Get your head around this. The God who wrote the law allowed himself to be born to a family that could not fulfill it. He understands poverty. So if you're going through that type of season in your life, he understands. That's the wonderful counselor. All the judgment that we experience for our sin, that was put on him. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carries our pain. But we returned and regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. Like the judgment that you and I deserved, he put on himself. The pain, the suffering, he took it on himself. So there's nothing that you go through that I go through that he hasn't gone through. He is the wonderful counselor and he can give expert advice. All the condemnation that you have ever felt, he took on him. In James chapter 1 verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You know, what with, without repro you know what reproach means? Like, have you ever had anybody in your life, maybe it's a kid, maybe it's somebody else, and they ask you for advice over and over again, and you give it over and over again, and they don't do it over and over and over again? And finally, you reach a point where they go, can I ask for your advice? And you're like, why? You never do it anyway. I mean, how dare you come and ask again? You never apply it. That's reproach. Like, I wonder sometimes, and I know it's not true, but you go, I think we kind of all live like this, where you go, God, I want to bring to you this thing. And I just imagine in heaven, the angels are like, here comes Jason again. <laughs> Guess what? He's done something stupid. Again. <laughs> and you would think God would go, dude, the audacity of you to keep coming and consistently not doing what I said. I'm not giving you any more wisdom. Can I tell you, when the scripture says without reproach, what it's saying is that when you've messed up the things in your marriage again, when you've wounded your children with your words or actions again, when you've screwed up things at your workplace, when you've done something you shouldn't have done, and you come to him and ask for wisdom for the millionth time, he'll give it without reproach, without judgment and condemnation. That is our God. He's not criticizing you. He's giving this wisdom. And the reason he can give it is because it's not the wisdom I deserve. It's the wisdom that Jesus Christ purchased for me. His name is Wonderful Counselor. Now, the Wonderful Counselor, this is good news for everybody. He came for people with problems. Anybody in here got problems? Come on, raise your hand. Let's be honest. Any problems in the room? Uh, matter of fact, here's the stuff. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Did you know that every single miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospels is preceded by a problem? Every single one. At no point does Jesus go, and for my next trick, I'll levitate. 
Every single thing that Jesus does, he deals with hunger and poverty and disease and brokenness and death, which means if you have a problem, raise your hand again if you're one of those people with problems. It means you're a candidate for a miracle. Congratulations. If you're one of those people that didn't have your hand up because you're like, I ain't got no problems, and now you're feeling a little bad because you're like, man, I want to be a candidate for a miracle. Don't worry. We'll pray problems come for you. It's going to be fine. We want to be ready for a miracle. It means we got to know how to approach the wonderful counselor. So let me give you some ground rules for how we approach the wonderful counselor. Number one, be brutally honest with the counselor. We tend to hide our problems. We hide them from ourselves. We hide them from others. We hide them even from God as if we could, but we still think we can. But the truth is until you're honest about your problems, you cannot get help. Being changed by Jesus is not like going to a car wash. You don't get to sit and do nothing while the car goes through the conveyor belt and you just sit in your car with Netflix on. There's actually a thing that you're going to need to participate in. You're going to actively go into a process of repenting. You're going to actively go into a process of beginning to respond to the words of the wonderful counselor. But it starts by acknowledging that we have messed up by being brutally honest. For years, I have struggled with an addiction. My addiction is to praise. My addiction is to people who would say, Jason, you're doing a great job. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm saying that I have had many times in my life, seasons of my life, years of my life, where I've been most driven, not by the Holy Spirit's urging in me, but by the hope that somebody would go, look at him. What a pastor. What a dad. What a husband. What a guy. What a friend. And I lived for this more than I lived to praise him. And I had to be honest about that. You know how I realized it was an addiction? Somebody else helped me point this out in my life. Was they, they helped me see what I was willing to sacrifice to get it. I was willing to sacrifice my family. I was willing to sacrifice my health just to get more applause. God had to do a tremendous work in my life, still has to. The moment I lower my guard, I know that ego and pride will come rushing back into me. And so I have to every day be ready to battle. What about you? What about you? Until you admit it, you're not going to change. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to tell you this. I think this is in your notes, but God's not going to change your life without changing you. God wants to transform you. God is in the transformation business. We see some really cool pictures of this in John chapter 4. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Jesus encounters a woman at a well. She's had a string of messed up marriages. Now she's shacked up with another guy that she's not married to. She's embarrassed. She's ostracized. She's isolated. And all because this woman was desperately looking for love. And Jesus shows up and he asks her a question. And she has the audacity to be honest with him. And I love how Jesus responds. I'll just kind of paraphrase. But he basically essentially, when she bears her soul to him, he basically looks at her and says, (laughs) I knew before we started this conversation. And I came for you anyway. I'm here for you. He approaches a woman caught in the act of committing adultery. In every one of these situations, he tells them after they bear their soul, where he says, hey, there's a part, that, uh, there's a part I'm going to do. I'm going to give you grace and mercy and forgiveness and all that stuff. There's a part I want you to do. Get up and go and sin no more. Repent. Change. Move away from the life that you're, that you're currently in and move towards something else. There's an active, not a passive part that we do, not in order to be saved, but coming out of a life that is saved. 
And we're being reminded right now there is no problem that he can't deal with. Whatever you're struggling with, God is not up in heaven going, well, that one was a surprise. Didn't see that coming. No, what you need to know, and I need to know, we need to remind it of, is the blood of Jesus Christ covered every one of those sins. We need to be honest about it. Maybe you struggle with these, and you can write these down in your notes. Maybe you struggle with the idea of depression. I'm not saying there's not parts of that that, are, that need counseling and all kinds of stuff like that, but have you been honest with God about your depression? That's the question. Have you been honest with God that you don't, that you don't feel a sense of hope, even though he is hope? That you don't feel a sense of hope for tomorrow? You don't think anything's going to ever get any better? Do you struggle and need to confess worry? That the, the thought that, con- that constantly dominates your mind is, what's, what's going to happen? Or I'm not good enough. Or what's going to happen? Or I'm not good enough. Or what's going to happen? Or I'm not good enough. Or what if it's fear? Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of the unknown, fear of change. What if it's stress? Are you carrying more than God's asked you to carry? Especially right now? Are you going, man, Jason, I didn't raise my hand at any of the times that you said, did you put up your decorations here, here, or here? Because the truth is, we still haven't got the stinking decorations up yet. And that's stressing you. And right now, after everybody else raised their hand, you felt a sense of stress because you're like, well, I guess we got to go home and put up everything this time. And not only that, you got to think about the family, you got to think about the gifts, you got to think about the food, you got to think about all the stuff, all the services, all the things, everything, and you're just stressed. What about your finances? You were already financially maxed out. Bills coming in you can't pay. And here we are. Merry Christmas. It's going to get worse. What about lonely? Are there any people in this room, and don't raise your hands, but maybe you've had to confess that when you see a happy family at Christmas, the first thought that goes to your head is, why don't I get that? Why am I having to go home alone? Why do I eat meals in isolation and hate it? Maybe you're a person and you're just furious. You're a boiling volcano and there is at any moment anything can cause you to erupt and you live in anger. Have you been honest with God about that? Have you gone to the wonderful counselor about your shame? Let me tell you, a lot of times at this time of year, here's the way shame goes on in our head. Somebody comes to you and goes, Wes, man, you're doing a great job. Really appreciate you. Thanks for everything you do. Man, I love you. Uh, Man, just fantastic. And then in your head, as somebody's even complimenting you, you go, hmm, if they only knew. If they only knew. They wouldn't love me like that if they only knew. They wouldn't like me at all if they only knew. They wouldn't build me up or encourage me if they only knew. Because I'm trying to wrestle with shame instead of offering it to my wonderful counselor. And what about guilt? Let me tell you something. There's a good form of guilt. There's a guilt that we're, there's a conviction of God that leads us in a good place, but there's also a guilt that puts you in a prison. Can I just tell you this? Guilt was designed to be a vehicle, not a prison. Your guilt is designed to carry you somewhere. And the intent of guilt is to bring conviction in your life that puts you in a car that drives you towards Jesus and leads you to freedom. It's not designed to be a prison you live in. For the rest of your life. God wants to set you free. I don't know about you, but I am grateful for a Christ who says things like this, that it is not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And I came for the sick. The wonderful counselor came for the sick. So, number two, we have to listen to his voice. 
In Mark chapter 9, there's what's called the transfiguration. It's before Jesus goes and he's crucified and all that kind of stuff happens. And it's this moment with a small group of his disciples where Jesus' glory and authority and power are revealed and he basically just becomes this bright, shining star. And it's this unbelievable moment. Well, the guys there, including Peter, they don't know how to process what's happening. Peter essentially in the scripture is like, dude, we've never seen anything like this before. It demands a response. Let's build something. An altar, a tent, something. And they don't know what to do as a response. And so the clouds open and a voice speaks and tells them the right response to the glory of Christ. It says this in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. A cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. What's the next word, church? Listen to him. Train your voice to hear his voice. There's a million sounds going around in our world. Have you trained your ear to be able to hear the voice of the wonderful counselor? Are you in the word so that when he speaks, you know it's him? Do you understand what it feels like to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding so that in the chaos and in all the stress, you can hear the peace that God brings into your life? Do you have people around you? Um, Not that we want to avoid all lost people. We're called to go share the gospel with them. But do you have other people who are there around you who are solid fixtures of people in faith who when they speak, you know that they are speaking words of truth that come from the wonderful counselor? Have you trained your ear to hear him? Crystal and I have had three biological kids. They're now older, 22, 20, and 17. We've also had 10 foster kids. Somebody walked up to me after the last service, and they go, you have 10 foster kids in your house right now? No. We've had two at a time. But every single one of them, and including our biological kids, it's amazing. It doesn't take very long. And I could have put any of those kids in this room, and I could have told everybody to talk all at the same time, and then I could have said, Caitlin, Crystal could have said, Addie. And in spite of all the other sounds, I'm going to tell you right now, those kids would go, because they've been trained to know that voice. We have to listen to the wonderful counselor, and it will change our life. Number three, you have to want to get better. In John chapter 5, Jesus is meeting with a paralyzed man. man's been paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus walks up to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he asks him this, do you want to be healed? I got to imagine as Jesus asked that, one of the disciples is like going, um, Lord, that was a dumb question. Who wouldn't want to be healed? We do it all the time. How many of us in this world, like, and I'm going to use some very practical examples, very simple examples. How many of you know the food you should eat? And then you eat the delicious food over here. How many of you know the financial choices that you should make that honor God and don't stress your family and still make the other ones? How many of you know what you need to do in your relationships, what you need to own, and the forgiveness you need to offer, but your pride and selfishness won't allow you to do it? And it's into those and the million other scenarios that I think that the wonderful counselor would lean in and say, do you really want to be well? Because right now, you're not holding on to healing. You're holding on to the sickness. What do you want here? 
See, we want God to clean up our mess without dealing with the choices and the patterns that got us into the mess in the first place. But God is in the transformation business. This may hit some people um, a little bit challenging, but I want to say this because I want to be careful of how we always present the gospel at this church. And I'm not saying we're better than anybody else. There's a ton of great churches out there, and I will at the same time tell you that there's probably some times when we have done this in a way we should have done it better. But we have to be careful when we preach the gospel that our focus... <laughs> Too often in modern Christianity, we preach a gospel that benefits us instead of transforms us. That we preach a gospel that says, and here's all the stuff you get. Instead of, here's how he's going to change your life. Here's how he's going to transform you. And do you know how I know that this is true in my life and yours and in so many others? It's because we have a sea of discouraged Christians we have a sea of discouraged Christians because they're still holding on to the power of the sin in their life and they have not yet taken hold of the power of freedom in their life. They're struggling with that reality. And some people are going, Jason, you, you don't understand. You don't know what I've gone through. You know what has been done to me. And I understand that. I hear you. But Jesus did not talk from a perspective of defeat. Jesus talked in life from a perspective of victory. And if we're supposed to be following him, shouldn't we start to sound like him? Shouldn't we start to be people who are talking about victory and that we have overcome the power of sin and death instead of almost celebrating the power of sin and death in our life? We have a culture that celebrates victimology instead of healing and victory. And I'm not saying that if you are a victim, if something's done to you, you shouldn't seek help. You should. What I'm saying is that God is here to set you free from it so that it no longer has to be your identity, but your identity can be in Christ Jesus. That God didn't give you a second chance, he gave you a new life. And if he gave you a new life, listen, how many of you, if you got a brand new car, would go back to the dealership and go, hey, I really like my new car, but I would love to drive around in my old one. You'd be like, no, man, I want to be in the new car. We do the same thing. God gives us a new life, and we wander back over here and go, can I drive around in my old broken life? Maybe we need to get a hold of his perspective and we need to believe in him and the freedom he provides instead of putting our belief in the things that destroyed us. Jesus died to give you that brand new life. That wonderful counselor is speaking that to you. Do you want to get better? And the last point as we go and approach the throne of the wonderful counselor is simply this. We have to do what he says. That may be the most, I, I told uh, the staff and I told uh, my wife, I said, I feel like I'm preaching the most obvious message in history. But can I tell you, this, how, here's how this works. Uh, some of you guys know this about me. I, 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 I do still run occasionally. I used to run a lot. I run seven marathons. I used to train for them all the time. I was trying to get ready to, to run a big marathon um, up in Michigan with a buddy of mine. I was living in Ohio. And he said, hey, man, I got us a trainer. Now, I don't know if you know anything about running a marathon. It's 26.2 miles. It's not particularly fast uh, as you run it. Um, I'm not a sprinter. It's not world class. We're not Olympic athletes. And he was like, I got a coach. And I'm like, a coach? We're, we're jogging, bro. Like, what do we need a coach for? And this guy comes into our life, and he asks me, he goes, I want you to run. And he watches me run away from him to the end of a gym, and he watches me run back, and he looks me dead in the eyes. He goes, you run wrong. <laughs> I got here. What are you talking about? He run wrong. I've been running my whole time. I was like 38. I was like, I've been running my whole life. 
I didn't even run wrong. And he goes, well, let me ask you this. Where do you struggle most on your runs? I said, well, I mean, I was like, well, you're going to ask me a dumb question. I'll give you an obvious answer. We lived in Cincinnati. It's called the City of Seven Hills. I was like, I struggle most when we're on the hills. Uh, in Cincinnati, they're hills. In Texas, they're mountains. <laughs> and I was like, I struggle most on the hills. And he goes, can't breathe, legs hurt. And I was like, yeah. He goes, try this. It was when you run up the hills, no matter how steep it is, it was I want you to force your elbows back farther than you'd feel comfortable. Really kick those elbows back. And never bring your fist past your hips. It was it's almost like shooting guns in the Wild West. And he's like, run like that. And in my brain, I went, you are an idiot. Uh, hey, bro, when I'm running up the hill, do you know what hurts? My legs and my lungs. My arms are fine. I can do this as I'm running up the hill, and it doesn't do anything. I can be like, like whatever it is, I, my arms are not the problem. And then we went on a run, and we got to a hill, and I was like, this is stupid. And Tom's like, try it. And I was like, fine. And I'm not joking. It was amazing. It didn't make it easier, but it took about 50% of the pain away. It was this moment of realization. I had run into somebody who knew what he was talking about more so than I did. And what I needed to do was whatever he said. That is what it's like to approach the wonderful counselor. He may tell you to do something that makes no sense to you. As a matter of fact, I will tell you very often, obedience does not make sense to us. And yet it's best for us. When he tells you to forgive that person and you're sitting there going, but who's going to avenge me? Do you have any idea what they did to me? Trust that he knows better. When he tells you in a dating relationship to end the relationship that you're in because it's not healthy, and you're going, but I don't want to be alone. Trust that he knows better. Do what he says. When he tells you, hey, there's this person, and, and, or maybe a family member, or a friend, or even your church or a ministry, and you go, hey, I want you to give towards this, whatever it is, a small amount, a big amount, and you go, but I cannot afford it. Do what he says, and see. When God tells you to move, like some of you guys wrote on those big boards in the back over the last series, some of you have struggled to have the courage to write on those big boards because God's calling you to something, and you go, I don't want to move, I'm comfortable here. Do what he says and trust him. You'll be open for a, a miracle and an experience from God. Do what he says. I read to you James chapter 5, verse 1 earlier. I want to read another part of it for a minute. We started off with this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach. We talked about that, and it will be given to him. Look at verse 6. But let him ask it with, excuse me, let him ask in faith without what, church? Without doubting. Now listen to the warning. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Maybe you're missing the experience. Maybe you're missing the miracle that God wants to give you in your life simply because you lack the obedience to do what the wonderful counselor says to do. This may be a, a weird thing to write in your notes, but I thought it would be applicable at Christmas. God requires a blank check. We often want to give a gift card. 
A blank check means that I'm handing him a blank check to my life and I'm going, you fill out the amount, whatever it is, all of it, it's yours. We often want to approach God with, uh, I would like, not like to give you a blank check. May I offer you a $50 gift card, however, where I can control the amount of sacrifice. God wants all of it. That's the equation. That's what God wants. You see it in the story in Matthew. There's a young man called the rich young ruler, and he says, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want my life to be transformed. What do I have to do? And God knows his heart, and he says, I want you to sell everything you have and follow me. And the young man says, it's too crazy. It's too much. All he could think about was giving up these temporary earthly things. But have you ever thought about what he actually lost in that equation? Jesus offered him eternity, and he walked away from it because there was an area of his life that was off limits to God and to the wonderful counselor. So let me just ask you, is there any area of your life that is off limits to God? And have you ever considered that if it is off limits, you're going to miss the wisdom, you're going to miss the experience, because he did not ask for a conditional surrender, he asked for all of it. And we think, man, we're giving up so much, if I surrender my whole life to him, what do I get? Here's what you get. You give him all of you, he has already given you all of him. You get his heaven, his eternity, his presence, his love, his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. You are getting the better end of the deal. That's who he is. Refuse to do it, and you live an unfulfilled, unvictorious life. And I would just encourage you to do what the wonderful counselor says to do. And I just want to end with this final point. When we look at the word wonderful, don't miss this. The wonderful describes Jesus, the counselor, not the solution to the problems. But at the end of the day, the most significant thing we get from going to the wonderful counselor is the presence of the counselor. That's the most valuable part. More valuable than any solution to any temporary problem. And if you get confused that thinking the answer to the problem is the most important thing, you'll miss the point of all of it. It's a little bit like this. If you were standing next to an atomic bomb and you asked somebody, hey, when this thing goes off, will I get hot? The answer is yes. But I can tell you when it goes off, your personal temperature will not be relevant. When we go to God and we go, can you fix my marriage? Can you, can you help deal with this thing that I'm dealing with in life? Can you help me with this struggle with sin? The answer is yes. But if that's all we get from the relationship, we're missing the, the main point. And the main point is not the solution to the problem. It's not the counsel. The main problem is that we get the counselor, that he's the blessing, that he's the gift that he's the one that changes our life, that it's the counselor that is too wonderful for words. And that gives us a life where we can anticipate more. And it won't take away all your problems, but it changes how you go through them. For example, you may not ever be wealthy, but in, in Christ you have a promise of eternal inheritance that is too wonderful for words. And you can anticipate that. You may continue to struggle with victory over temptation, but in Christ you have the promise that one day you will be just as pure as he is. You may be pressed on every side, but you will not be crushed. You might be confused, but you will never despair. 
You might be persecuted, you will not be abandoned. You might be struck down, but you will not be destroyed. See, the world wants us to figure out how to cope with life. The wonderful counselor wants to give you a brand new one. And he wants to give you himself. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today and for the opportunity just to be here and to be in your word. God, I pray that, that you would use these words, not, not because they came from me, God, because they came from you, and use them to, to open hearts and transform lives. The truth is that there are many people in this room that are going through any number of things, and they need to talk to somebody. They need to understand how to navigate this. There's believers in this room that are going through difficult situations, and they've refused to acknowledge them and seek your wisdom. God, I pray they would go to our prayer team. They would come to our staff, that they would do whatever they can. They would reach out to trusted friends. They would get into your word, God, and they would seek your wisdom, and then they would listen and do it. There are others in this room, God, and the first step they need to take is they don't have a relationship with you. And they hear this, and they go, I want that. Where do I start? And God, I pray that they would know that we would love to help them today experience the presence of the wonderful counselor in their life and hope and freedom and grace can come rushing in today. God, I pray as we sing this song, you let us sit in this for a moment, think about these decisions and be reminded of the power of the name of Jesus that brings us out of darkness into light. In Jesus' name, amen.